Numbers chapter 20, starting at verse 22, and reading through to 21, verse 9. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites, because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar, for Aaron will be gathered to his people there, and he will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain and when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned him for 30 days. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake... They lived. Thanks, Corinne, for reading. Morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Let me um, start with a quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you're beyond your need of God's grace. Uh, God's grace is his undeserved kindness. We start the Christian life by grace. We continue by grace. We cannot move forward with God at all but by his grace. We've called this series in the book of Numbers, Walking with God in the Wilderness. And what does that look like? What does it look like for us to walk with God as we journey through this life towards our promised land of the new creation? Well, a big part of that answer, an answer to that question is we walk by grace. That is the nature of our relationship with God. We walk by grace. We live by grace. And so in this section of numbers that we're going to try and cover this morning, it's a big section, all the way from chapter 15 to 21. Uh, you're going to need a Bible because we're going to be covering quite a lot of ground and uh, flicking around a fair bit. Uh, but in this section, and I do apologize, uh, I haven't got a PowerPoint this morning, 
didn't quite get around to that, um, so we're going to need our, our minds and hearts engaged. But through this section, three big themes come through, and they're, they're themes that we've seen throughout the book of Numbers so far. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of his people, and God's sovereign grace. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of his people, and God's sovereign grace. Let me um, pray for us, and then we will dive in. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the, the treasure of your words. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit, the presence of your spirit here with us this morning, the same spirit who caused these words to be written, written as examples for us, for our instruction. And so we do pray that you would help us, you would engage our minds, you'd open our hearts, you'd give us listening ears and ready wills. We pray that you'd open our eyes to, to see the Lord Jesus as he's revealed through these chapters that we might be people who trust in him and him alone, who walk by grace and grace alone. Amen. Well, come with me back to the end of chapter 14 and uh, some verses that we didn't cover last week. Uh, you remember the spies come back with a report, a bad report of the land, and the people rebel against God. They uh, reject his promises and his plan of salvation and refuse to go into the land, and God consigns that whole generation to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the whole generation has died out. And then, we're told, verse 39, when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, now we're ready to go up to the land, the Lord promised. Surely we've sinned. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites, the Canaanites will face you there. Because you've turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, verse 44, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. And if you've got a footnote, Hormah means destruction. So the people are destroyed. In their presumption, they try and go up and they're defeated by the people of the land. Now, come ahead to chapter 21 and what we've just had read. Beginning of chapter 21, we're told the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim. He attacked the Israelites and captured some, some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. Same place. In chapter 14, it's the Israelites who are destroyed. In chapter 21, it's the Israelites who are doing the destroying. And in the rest of chapter 21, which we didn't have read, we're told of two more really significant victories that God gives his people. Israel defeats Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Now those two victories are celebrated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Really significant events for Israel, particularly in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. God reminds his people, I gave you victory over Sion and Og. You can trust me to give you victory as you enter the land. 
And even here in Numbers 21, they sing about these victories. Now, the Israelites haven't sung since Exodus 15, when they were brought through the Red Sea and sung about their victory over the Egyptians. But now they're singing again. What has brought about this change? Chapter 14, at Hormah, they're destroyed. Chapter 21, they're doing the destroying. They're winning victories. They're singing about it. What has happened to bring about this change of fortune? Well, the, the writer, author, uh, the author of Moses, makes it very clear. There's one thing that hasn't happened to bring about this change. The people haven't changed. Look at verse 4 again. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. That's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? There's no bread, and we detest this bread. But basically, it's the same complaint, isn't it, that we've seen again and again. Now, by this stage of the story, most of the first generation have already died out. From chapter 15 up to this point, we don't know exactly where we're at in the 40 years, but it seems we're reaching the end of that period. The first generation have died. I think it's right to say that the majority of the people now are new generation Israelites. But if we'd hoped that the new generation would be different to their parents, sadly it appears not. Throughout these chapters, we see the sinfulness of God's people, their ongoing rebellion. We also continue to see the holiness of God and the devastating consequences when God's holiness meets his people's unholiness. And yet throughout these chapters, again and again, we hear the sweet refrain of God's sovereign grace. In particular, there are four ways in which God's grace is expressed, four things that God in his grace provides. Sacrifice, a high priest, cleansing, and rescue from death. Sacrifice, a high priest, cleansing, and rescue from death. Four things that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. So firstly, God provides sacrifice. Chapters 13 and 14, as we saw last week, tell us of the tragic failure of Israel. The spies go into the land, bring back their bad report, the people are scared, rebel against God, and are consigned to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But then, chapter 15, God speaks, and it's a stunning word of grace. Chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land, I'm giving you as a home. Can you see how significant that is? God is assuring his people that despite their failure, he's still committed to keeping his promise and bringing them into the land. After you enter the land, that I'm still giving you as a home. But not only is God still committed to bringing his people to the land, he's also committed to maintaining relationship with them. God starts talking about sacrifices that they can make to ensure that they continue enjoying relationship with him. Now, God's already said a lot about sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. But now, in the light of Israel's failure, he speaks again 
to make it clear that what his people need is sacrifice. See, God knows his people will sin and continue to sin, and so he graciously provides sacrifices to deal with their sin, all kinds of sin, so that his relationship with them is maintained. Now, the new element in these laws here in Numbers 15 seems to be that that God says every sacrifice now, every offering is to be accompanied, accompanied with flour and oil and wine. Now, you can't produce those things in the wilderness, can you? Flour, you need a crop, and olive oil, you need olive trees, and wine, you need vineyards. That in itself is a pledge that they're going to make it to the land. But part of the reason for the oil and wine seems to be to produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You see that phrase repeated again and again. Um, I often have the experience of um, stepping out of my home or out of the church here um, to be greeted by the pleasing aroma of freshly roasted coffee beans down the road at Willow Bend. The whole suburb, I think, is filled with the smell. And if nothing else, that smell tells you Coffee is available, not only there, but for other places. And so for Israel, the constant pleasing aroma rising from the altar, spreading through the community, would remind them that they had been called into being as a nation to enjoy a relationship with Yahweh, and that he was persistently pursuing them, making it possible for them to walk with him, providing the sacrifices that they need for them to continue in relationship. The smell proclaims that even after failure, God's still utterly committed to his covenant relationship with them. Have you ever had the feeling that you've completely stuffed up and there's no recovery? Maybe you've accidentally deleted every word of an assignment. Or uh, you realize that the flight that you're booked on to go home was yesterday. Or you've done something to someone you love and you wonder if it's just totally blown the relationship. Do you know that feeling, knowing that you've stuffed up and there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix it? Well, have you experienced the sheer relief that comes from discovering Actually, there is a backup. There is another flight that you can get home. That despite your failure, you're still loved. That's the effect, I think, of God speaking about life beyond the judgments of chapter 14. Life in the land and the provision of sacrifice. Our God, our God has provided the perfect sacrifice for us, hasn't he? the sacrifice that establishes and maintains our relationship with him. As Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is wonderfully good news. And as the Apostle John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The second thing God graciously provides for his people is a humble high priest. Sadly, but 
Not surprisingly, chapter 16 begins with yet more rebellion. Have a look at 16 verse 1. Korah, son of Izar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. And they rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who'd been appointed members of the council. Pretty intimidating. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Now, if you remember, the Levites had a very special job. They'd been set apart by God to serve at the tabernacle and guard the other tribes from getting too close. But for Korah, it's not enough. He wants power. He wants to be a leader. It seems he wanted to be a high priest on the same terms as Aaron. Look at what Moses says, verse 8. Now, listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too. Moses then tries to talk to Dathan and Abiram. They're not Levites, they're Reubenites. Uh, But verse 12, we're told they won't even talk to him. They say to Moses, isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, and now you also want to lord it over us? Notice they're now calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey. But again, their accusation is that Moses is lording it over them. He's got too big for his boots. Moses gets angry, verse 15, and says to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I haven't taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged anyone. Why he mentions donkeys, I'm not sure, but there you go. And so Moses sets up a test. You want to be priests, do you? Well, let's get everyone to undertake a priestly task and offer incense. Now, the purpose of the test is to show who God has chosen, who is God's appointed priest. So verse 5, in the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, that's essentially a fire bucket, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites are the ones who have gone too far. So the 250 rebels get a censer each, and they all stand before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And God appears in glory and says, everyone get away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Get away from their tents. And then verse 31, the ground opens up and swallows them and their households. Then fire comes out from the Lord and incinerates the 250 men who were offering incense. And their censers are taken and hammered into bronze sheets that are used to overlay the altar to remind the Israelites, verse 40, that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord or he would become like Korah and his followers. It's pretty full on, isn't it? 
The people start complaining, verse 44. They're grumbling again against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people. But it wasn't them, was it? God says he's going to put an end to them, and plague breaks out. But Aaron takes his censer, runs into the midst of the people, verse 47, and makes atonement for them. He stands between the living and the dead, and the plague stops. But not before 14,700 people have died. Korah's arrogance led to the death of almost 1,500 people. And it's a reminder again of the devastating consequences of what happens when God's holiness and our sinfulness meet. But these chapters are really about confirming that Aaron is the man that God has chosen, the one that God has appointed to be high priest. And that point's made through the three stories, how God makes it very clear he has not chosen Korah and the other rebels, Secondly, that Aaron demonstrates his role as an effective high priest by making atonement for the people and stopping the plague. And then thirdly, in the story that we get in chapter 17, where God provides a visual aid to confirm his choice of Aaron and to put an end to the grumbling of the people. One of the things that you see through this messy narrative is the lengths to which God goes to help his sinful, stubborn people. He does everything he can to help them get on the right page. And so chapter 17, Moses is told to get a staff from every tribe and put it in the tent of meeting overnight. And then verse 8, we're told the next day, Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Now, if you weren't in Lindsay's Sunday school class last week and missed the uh, wonderful visual illustration of that, you can talk to her later. Okay, it's at our house. If you come to the mission workshop, you can see it. God confirms Aaron as his chosen high priest. And in chapter 18, gives instructions to ensure that Aaron and his sons are provided for so they can carry on their ministry. The lesson of these chapters, 16 to 18, is that we need a high priest. Not only do we need sacrifices to establish and maintain our relationship with God, but we also need the right priest to offer those sacrifices. Not a power-grabbing priest like Korah, but a a humble high priest, appointed by God. And that's exactly where the writer to the Hebrews goes in his description of Jesus. In Hebrews 5, I'll read it to you. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is also why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, 
You are my son. Today I've become your father. Jesus is our high priest, appointed by God, gentle and humble. And maybe as we feel weary and burdened by the pressures of life, we can take comfort in this, that in our Lord Jesus, not only has God provided the perfect sacrifice, but also a wonderfully humble and gentle high priest who invites us to come to him and walk with him to find peace and rest and delight in the presence of his Father. The third thing God in his grace provides for his sinful people is cleansing. Sacrifice, a high priest, cleansing. Now at this point in the story, there have been a lot of dead bodies, haven't there? There's a lot of corpses, which not only speaks of God's judgment on sin, but also creates a big problem for the people when any sort of contact with a dead body means that you're ritually unclean. Which is why God in his grace provides the ritual of the red heifer in chapter 19. I was at the show this week and at one point spotted a boy with a t-shirt that said South Australian Junior Heifer Expo. I thought, wow, how bizarre is that? And uh, apparently the, the website tells us that it is the largest and most successful junior beef industry educational event in all of Australia. And then I remembered that I was going to be speaking on a passage that describes an ancient ritual in which the ashes of a heifer, a red heifer, which has been sacrificed outside the camp, are kept and they're mixed with water to provide cleansing for when a person has come into contact with dead bodies. And I wondered what they'd think of that at the Junior Heifer Expo. Chapter 19, verse, we're not going to spend long on this. Chapter 19, 17 tells us about this ritual. For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burned purification offering. That's the red heifer that's been sacrificed outside the camp. Put, it, put them into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who's been killed or anyone who's died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days and on the seventh day he is to purify them. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water and that evening they will be clean. Now, rituals like this do seem rather bizarre for us modern readers, and we can be tempted to ignore them. But Gordon Wenham says in his brilliant little commentary, rituals reveal values at their deepest levels. Rituals reveal values. They express what a society considers important. Now, the same is true for us today. We may not use the language of ritual, but we have habitual practices that express what's most important to us. You might discuss that afterwards. But Wenham says, if we do not understand the ritual system of a people, we do not understand what makes their society tick. And so this ritual of the red heifer expresses the importance for God's people of being ceremonially clean 
able to take part in the life and worship of the community. And I wonder if you knew that this ritual is specifically picked up by the writer to the Hebrews as he explains the greater work of Jesus. In Hebrews 9.13, the writer to the Hebrews says this, The the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. See, in the Lord Jesus, God has provided a way for us to be fully cleansed. Not just outwardly, not just ceremonially, but our consciences cleansed. Guilt taken away. The assurance that our sin, though serious, has been dealt with. That it will never be counted against us. So cleansing. Fourthly and finally, God in his grace provides an antidote to death. Sacrifice, a priest, cleansing, and now rescue from death, an antidote to death. In chapter 20, the sinfulness of God's people is seen to reach even to the leaders, Moses and Aaron, leading leading God to declare that both of them will die before entering the land. Moses' death is delayed, but Aaron, as we read, dies on Mount Hor and is mourned for 30 days. So, chapter 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron again. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. More grumbling, more sin, and amazingly more grace. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting. They fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff. And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So, verse 9, Moses takes the staff, presumably Aaron's budding staff, takes it from the Lord's presence, just as God commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. So far, so good. It's what happens next that's so disastrous. Moses is standing before the people with the wooden reminder in his hand that God is the one who appoints people to ministry, that we all serve at his appointment and for his glory, and he blows it completely. Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Moses is starting to think, he can take the place of God. And so rather than do what God has told him to do, he decides to ad-lib a little bit, improve, make it a bit more spectacular. So he doesn't speak to the rock, he strikes it and presumably thinks that was pretty good, so he does it again. 
Then, verse 11, Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. And no doubt everyone was really impressed, all apart from the Lord. He says, verse 12, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. This tragic incident demonstrates that the effects of sin are so far-reaching that even Moses rebels and is judged. Like the rest of his generation, Moses is going to die in the wilderness because he's defied the holy God. He's failed to honor God as holy, thought he could do it himself. Now, wonderfully, God does work through us and despite us, but always by his grace. Whatever we do, whatever we achieve, we do only through the grace of God. And we need to remember that. But because of their rebellion, Moses is going to die. And at the end of chapter 20, Aaron does die. One by one, the entire generation is going to die because God's holiness and people's sinfulness cannot live together. And it's a continuing problem. So back to chapter 21 where we started. The people grew impatient on the way, verse 4. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water. We detest this miserable food. Same old grumbling, same old sin. Old generation, new generation, the people's hearts are just the same. And so, verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Death is the unavoidable problem for a sinful people seeking to walk with a holy God. And this time God provides an antidote for death. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? There seems to be a kind of inversion going on. Those who are dying from the bite of a live snake are restored to life by looking at a dead snake. The people are rescued from death And God blesses them, as we've seen, with victory over Sion and Og and assures them of their entry to the land. And it's all because of his grace. The big message of these chapters is that there is nothing in us that makes us deserving to receive God's promised blessings. Our only hope is the sovereign grace of God. And that, I think, explains the way in which Jesus takes up this final story of the bronze snake and explains his own mission. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus was a chief rabbi, leader of God's people. If anyone could stand before God based on their own merits, it would be Nicodemus. If anyone was deserving of God's blessing, well, it would be him. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
In other words, we can't receive God's promised blessings based on our own merits. We need God's gracious provision for us. And so he says, verse 14 of John 3, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As we sang in our opening hymn, Jesus is the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. We start the Christian life by grace, and we continue by grace. We cannot make any progress with God except by his grace. The call of these chapters is to face reality, to acknowledge our ongoing sinfulness, to acknowledge our undeservedness to receive any of God's blessings, to look to, to trust in our gracious God, who in the Lord Jesus gives us a humble, gentle, eternal high priest to whom we can go to receive grace and mercy in our time of need, who is himself the perfect sacrifice, establishing and maintaining our relationship with God, whose blood cleanses our consciences so that we can be assured our sin is fully and fully forgiven forever, never to be counted against us. And through his death assures us of victory over the grave, of life to the full, now and forever. So keep looking to him, trusting in him. Keep walking by grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these stories from centuries ago, written for our instruction, stories that so clearly point forward to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for your grace revealed so clearly in him, his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that he is our true, perfect high priest, that he is our once-for-all sacrifice, who establishes, maintains our relationship with you, cleanses our consciences, and who assures us of victory over death. Please keep us looking to him, trusting in him, walking each day of our lives by your wonderful, amazing grace. Amen.